The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report by Keystone Partners. I'm Dave Hennessy, and today's guest is Yolanda Butler-Stevens, the Chief of People and Culture at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. Yolanda started her career in labor relations, went to law school, thought she'd end up in civil rights, always wanting everyone to have a fair shot in work experience, and decided the best way to make an impact was through human resources. My Keystone colleague, Tracy Delgado, introduced Yolanda and me, and actually Tracy joins our discussion for a few questions. Yolanda's realness shines through. She's empathetic and personable. Constantly being the new kid taught her an important life lesson that it's okay to not always fit in, and she works to make sure that her organization is diverse and inclusive. Museum of Science and Industry, part of their mission is inspiring the inventive genius in everyone in math, science, and technology. And they've done some amazing things in engaging IDEO for creativity and tapped into Google for some resources in their community. It's an amazing organization, and Yolanda's an incredible leader. Next up on the podcast, we have Jennifer Cartono, the Senior Vice President of Global Human Resources for Iron Mountain. And now our conversation with Yolanda Butler-Stevens. Yolanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning. Excited to be here. I'm glad you're here. And I'm so glad my Keystone colleague in Chicago, Tracy Delgado, introduced us for this podcast. And she's joining us for this podcast as well. Hey, Tracy. (laughs) Hello. Yolanda, we always love to start the podcast. We'd love to hear some earlier life experience that still informs your work today. Maybe it was an inflection point for your career or your life. I think I would say it definitely was and is my parents. Both of them are from the South, one from Tennessee, one from Kentucky, and then in Dayton, Ohio, someone set them up after college. And we moved around quite a bit due to my father's career. He was a chemical engineer, so he worked for all three of the automotive industry. So as a kid that moved around quite a bit, you always were trying to fit in. You were the new kid, having always to establish kind of new relationships and connections. At the time, that seemed hard, but it really has been a really important life lesson about sometimes it's okay to not fit in. Because those are the lessons my parents had to teach us to make us feel good about being the new kid. At the time, as a kid, you know, you're like, oh, you're just saying that to make me feel better. (laughs) But now, particularly, it is a testament, I think, of where we are in terms of when you think about diversity and inclusion and culture. It really is about maybe not always fitting in, challenging the status quo, at least giving a different idea about how to think about things. So I think early on, I got comfortable with that. So there's almost any room that I walk into. I may not fit, but I'm comfortable. That's great. Well, let's talk about your organization, Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. Not counting last year, a million and a half visitors per year. What an organization. Can you talk a little bit about the history and your mission? The Museum of Science and Industry, it's a science institution, which means it's grounded in facts. But it truly is magical. Yeah, it's quite a historic building. Yes, very historic. It was the site of the World Fair. When you walk into the building itself, it's magical, it's big, it's huge. 
And then you walk in and it looks very serious, but then you see all these kids. Because a big part of our mission is about inspiring the inventive genius in everyone in math, science, and technology. For me in particular, when I walked in for my interview, it was during the holiday season. And on top of that, we have an exhibit each year, holiday lights around the world. So we have trees represented for different cultures. And so that just adds to the mystic, the magic of this beautiful, wonderful science institution. So I think that's what makes us unique, not just the square footage of how large we are, but how big the mission is, which isn't just about science and education, which is critically important, but it's also about connections. It's about how do you connect people that maybe have been on the outside of traditional education, but still need science and education, the rigor of that. When you look at the history of Rosenwald, who founded it, he started to actually create coming out of the segregation of Jim Crow schools for African-Americans who weren't allowed to get educated. And he actually propped up education centers through the South, focusing on educating people that were slaves, who were descendants of slaves. And so that tradition is embedded in who MSI is. In recent times, we've been intentional about calling back on that feeling and what it means to connect and have to be a voice for everyone. That's great. And I know from Tracy and from the things that you write about and post on, diversity and inclusion is very important to you. How does that extend DNI throughout your organization? I'm happy to say that the work and the commitment that MSI has didn't start with me. And I think David Mosina, who's been president there for 20 years, has really always talked about our mission is not only to build the world-class exhibitions, but also to be a science education center for the South side of Chicago and beyond, because we service Indiana and extending suburbs. And so that piece of education for all has really been important. So when I joined, just kind of picked up what had already kind of been laid down in the institution, put more of a strategic focus around it and connecting the dots, really thought about how you measure your progress with diversity, inclusion, and equity, and how do you identify what those gaps are? It really has been a team effort across, I would say, all the divisions in the institution in terms of what we choose to fundraise for, how we use those funds for programs in school, how we decide what we market, communities where we're marketing to encourage people who maybe haven't, for whatever reason, come to the museum. We do all of that with the lens of diversity, inclusion, and creating this greater sense of belonging. Yeah, I think you're starting to give some examples about how you really embed DNI into the organization. So it's not a program, it's not something separate. I know you've been on a culture journey for the last few years. Your culture of which diversity and inclusion should be part of it, as is your talent planning, your talent process, as is your engagement. We've been really intentional that diversity and inclusion doesn't stand separate and apart from performance management. It's part of the nucleus of what drives the execution of each of those things. Obviously, you want to have racial and gender representation, but it's also different discipline functions that you have because that can bring a different idea when you're thinking about an exhibit. And so you may not have someone, let's say, in an area that is bilingual by nature of that division that builds exhibits. But I may have a bilingual staff member in HR that can add some value, that can give a perspective. So we've been really intentional about collaboration, ensuring that we have different disciplines that maybe traditionally haven't been involved 
in the ideation process of coming up with ideas and brainstorming and helping with our creative process. We worked with IDEO to come in to really think about how you do that in a really intentional way, because people say we want to collaborate all the time. So they really helped us look at developing four areas that we could really think about. One, how do we reimagine the execution of our experiences? How to do things better in a way that can maybe reach new and different audiences, but still is core to what we think is important. And what I really liked about IDEO, that it wasn't just about what you're building in exhibits and education, but talking about your greatest resource, which is the talent. And sometimes that is forgotten from these huge initiatives. And so HR was brought into that and ensuring that as we grow as an institution, we're growing our talent within the institution as well. I think these are really great examples. Are there any other examples about how you embed the DNI component into your work? About a year and a half ago, we established core values and we look at our competencies to ensure that they reflect this enhanced culture that we were creating that had a focus on collaboration, that had a focus on diversity and inclusion, that had a focus on what it means to create a supportive work culture. It took about a year, focus groups, we worked with an outside consultant, surveying, do some benchmarking, really kind of figure out what were the right competencies to reflect the organization the way that we wanted to grow. And then from that, help develop the core values around diversity and inclusion, around creating a supportive uh, work environment, about ensuring that we have an inclusive atmosphere, and really took time to define what those mean. And we're starting that process in 2020 to roll that out, and then the world changed. <laughs> uh, Boy, did it so, change. <laughs> you know, it put it on pause, and so... The core values are there, the competencies are there, but everything has been stretched, strained with this pandemic, right? When you're talking about creating a supportive culture in a museum, and all of a sudden, everybody's remote and we're a museum. <laughs> so it's been unique challenges to try to continue that work in a positive way. Right, and it leads to a question about culture. How do you make sure your organization stay in tight knit and that you're getting everybody what they need True transparency and candor. It's been tough. We aren't like other institutions that maybe already had a remote working because they had multiple sites. We are a museum. And so as a museum, everybody works in the museum. So it was, I think, a shock for us to even begin to think about how do we even work when we are closed, right? And then how do you think about that in an equitable work? Because it's such so a physical experience, right? It's a physical experience. And there are some people who their role is tied to being on the floor and talking about this science experience or this exhibit. One of the things that we tried to do early on is over-communicate. We have a newspaper electronic called Dateline. And so we were almost over-communicating like every day with things going on. Started, you know, staff Q&A. We had virtual Zoom town halls. And then we've done a lot of training support about emotional well-being with our leaders about how they need to connect with their teams, how to do that. So I think just transparent, ongoing communication until people start saying it's too much then you start figuring out, okay. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's what we did. We, enough, you <laughs> love. <laughs> right. But then there's some that, you know, it never is enough. So yeah. you get back to that normal, normal in HR. When 
you get complaints and half the people happy in HR, that's success, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you start to think about reopening, as we get to the warmer spring and summer months, what are the things you're doing now to plan for the reopenings? Dave, I was just on a uh, webinar yesterday, and I think the challenge is there isn't going to be a new normal. It's going to be a new difference. So what our challenge is is to figure out what pieces of this remote working world is going to be permanent in a culture institution in a museum. We're going to open likely before they say the general public has access to vaccination. So we have to figure out what are you going to do to one, protect your staff so that their well-being and their health is a priority, but at the same time encouraging guests to come here and say we're a safe place. And because we're a science institution, our education division, along with our marketing division, are really starting to work with the city of Chicago and in the health, thinking about what can be our role with them as they want to encourage people to get vaccinated, as they're looking for needing community sites to maybe help with that. And then what is our position as an exhibit or as an education piece around vaccinations, around pandemic, around COVID? So we're trying to really spending intentional time to figure out our position as a culture institution on those, but also just as a member of a community. You have quite a challenge here later in 2021. Also, I'm really excited about our new CEO that is just started, Chevy Humphreys, who came from Arizona Science Center. She's going to bring um, a lot of enthusiasm, pick up on this idea of innovation and technology and really invigorate the museum. And what I'm really excited about is that her and David Messina had a working relationship for many years as leaders of science centers. And so I think there's a lot of connectivity there of what his legacy was and kind of what she's going to create forward. The other thing I wanted to mention to you, we talked about partnerships before when Tracy first introduced me to you. Can you talk a little bit about your corporate partnerships and maybe how new technology and the interactive nature of your organization will come into play more and more? We've had partnerships with Google at times, whether it's around technology or how do we digitize our collections departments. Then, of course, there is the relationships that our education division, led by Ravi Amaz, has with the city of Chicago and the education department there, as well as school districts around the city of Chicago. And so we do a lot, as you know, in terms of educating, providing resources to teachers about how to teach science. So we're in a lot of schools. We have a lot of teachers when we were open that came to the museum to do a lot of that. And then we have the Fab Lab which had been a physical place where people came either for school groups, for additional lessons around science lessons and technology. And then we also just recently launched virtual teaching labs for teachers as well as students as everyone's in this remote world. Anything um, surprise you about your experience at Google? We're a big cultural institution, but they're Google, right? And so we were excited, but I think what was pleasantly surprising to me is how interested they were in working with us, how important they saw our mission, particularly around education and how eager they were to figure out ways that they could support us. That's cool. We produced this podcast in cooperation with the Northeast Human Resources Association. Megan Mandino is on a subcommittee of the Emerging HR Professionals at NERA, and I'm going to welcome her in to ask you the NERA question. 
For those currently supporting HR in the legal field, like you had started in labor relations and considering a transition to HR, what advice would you tell them, such as what are the major differences they should be expecting and what skills should they be honing now? I think the first thing I would say is how much more influence you will have on shaping the organization as an HR professional versus a legal professional. I did go to law school wanting to make a difference, wanting to give back, have a positive impact, and thought I was going to end up in civil rights and, you know, ended up in employment and labor, which to me was a way to give back and give influence and to try to make sure that everyone has a fair shot in a work environment. I didn't find that as much when I was in traditional practice. You certainly advise and you counsel. Typically, it's when there's a problem that... (laughs) has gotten maybe out of hand, in particular if you're in employment and labor, right? That's what drew me to making the shift was wanting to be more involved and preventing things from getting to me. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would say the other piece is really authentic communication so that people don't feel like they can't have a different opinion or that the way you're saying it makes it seem like that's the way it has to be done. Typically, attorneys are direct communicators, which people can perceive sometimes as being inflexible. You're not bad. You're just trying to get to the point so you can give advice about what needs to be executed. So it took years, I think, of kind of untraining. It wasn't what I was saying. It was how I was saying Going from fixing the problem that had already existed to trying to get to the root of the problem in HR, I feel like that's mirrored in your role now, trying to spread scientific education to the masses and how that's connected to education and scientific fact and social behavior. Absolutely. I think the environment that we're all you know, living in now with the pandemic and then overlay that with the social justice issues that occurred last summer and then the things that occurred at the beginning of January as we're looking to make this transition um, of leadership in our country, it is also connected. And there is no way around not being connected and being inclusive, whether you like it or not. I think that argument has left. It is here. And so we just have to figure out how to work together and make it work for all of us. Key, our survival is dependent on it. Even having people on the fringes affects all of us. Well said, Yolanda. Critical. Well, now we're going to bring Tracy back. Tracy's the president and chairman of the Talent Management Executive Consortium, and you're a member of that Chicago-based organization. Yolanda, my first question is around talent management and HR. Given the remote situation in 2020 and the likelihood that many employees will continue working from home in the future, what suggestions or insights can you share with HR leaders to successfully manage talent reviews and the performance management process? So often we can think that we can just apply a process to the current circumstance. Do your competencies need to be modified based on the fact that you are completely remote? Are there core values or things that need to be expanded? And if you've done good work in developing your core bodies and competencies, the answer is probably no. But I think you should do that exercise anyway to be sure. The next step is really evaluating the tactics to make Mm -hmm. each of those occur in a way that's meaningful to the institution. 
we over the years have moved away from more performance management, more to a goal setting and trying to really tie people's performance to goal conversations that should be occurring more frequently throughout the year as opposed to once a year sitting down and just doing <laughs> an exercise that we know everybody loves, right? <laughs> Lots of stuff. It's pain, painful for the manager and the employee. <laughs> and so then it just becomes kind of meaningless in an exercise, right? And so we had slowly been trying to move for more goal-focused where it's more of a conversation with the leader and that employee as opposed to just sitting and listening and going back and then forgetting about it into next year. And so I think if you haven't already made that adjustment, that's critically important. And then I think the other piece for us that we've had to shift to was really, really pulling away performance management with that merit. Because what happens when you then are faced with a crisis financially and all of those things become things you have to look at, does that mean you throw away how you evaluate talent because you aren't able to either give as much as part of the merit or there is no merit, right? And so I think really ensuring that those things are separate become really important as uncertainty faces us all. Then I think there's the piece of ongoing education and training with your leaders. You cannot refresh enough how to think about evaluating talent. In particular, if you have developed new competencies, you need to talk about what does it mean to say you're inclusive. People use those words, how are you ensuring that leaders have the right skills to appropriately measure that? That leaders really understand when you say you want people to be agile, what does that really mean? Does that mean just doing what I want you to do when I say to do it? No. <laughs> right? And so I think there's this constant kind of defining what that means. And I think when you're in a crisis, it becomes something different. Agile, when everyone's remote, when you're used to working in a museum, is different now than it was a year and a half ago. Oh, Yolanda, that's great. Great insight. It's so important to get those leaders on board, right? Because they support and they drive it. My second question, over the past 10 months, and as you mentioned earlier, the very first week in January presented unprecedented challenges and disruptions to us and our families. And I think I shared with you, Keystone Partners is having a fireside chat with Joan Lublin around how executive moms like yourself navigate work and life. So Yolanda, as a wife, as a mom, as an HR executive, juggling many hats, many important hats, how do you strike a balance between work and home life with so much going on in the world? So in real candor, I don't. Tracy called me on Wednesday. In true candor, I was having a moment with what was going on in the world. My kids are just back into remote learning this week after the break and my husband is out of town. And so I had a moment where there was no balance. Over these past 10 months, that has become my reality and I've decided not to shy away from it. It's all just out there because I'm on a call and my seven year comes here and wants to just rub my arm. No reason, he just wants to do it. You will drive yourself, in my opinion, crazy trying to pretend like there is a balance. There are times when I'm meeting people new for the first time, I share. I'm working from home remote and I have kids that are doing class in the room next door, so it may be interrupted, right? And then I'm real with my family too. There are times that I have to say to my kids, 
I'm in a meeting right now. I've got to shut the door. You cannot come in for this. And I had moments this summer when things were breaking uh, with George Floyd. And for me personally, I'm raising two black boys. And so that was very difficult. But I'm also the person in the institution that helps prepare other people for how to have those conversations with their teens. What's our response? And so I had to say to my colleagues, I need a moment. I can't respond to what the institution needs right now because I got to answer questions for my son. And I'm going to keep that going. I have just chosen that I think this is the time where you just have to be real that it's difficult to balance. Yolanda, I tell you, that's one of many things I love about you is every time I speak to you, there's this realness and there's that candor and vulnerability that we all enjoy when speaking with you. So I definitely appreciate that. You know, I feel okay now. (laughs) (laughs) So I love it. And gosh, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, we all have those moments, right? Thank you for those questions, Tracy and Megan, and your answers, Yolanda, powerful responses. If you could write a letter to your 25 or 30-year-old self, giving yourself advice going back, what would you write, dear Yolanda? Get real sooner, right? (laughs) Like I was a serious law school graduate getting ready to start my legal career and you will connect faster with people and people will trust you and people want to work and be with people that they trust and like. And so I would say, get real, loosen up. (laughs) All right. That's good. So what's something 10 years from now you're here that you'll regret that you haven't done or didn't do the way you wanted to? When I think about where we are now in the world with so much going on, sometimes I feel like, did I push enough? Did I challenge enough? Did I play it too safe at times? Did I raise the right question? Have I made enough change? Have I tried to make enough change? Have I used my influence enough? That's good. A book that changed your life? Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. It's more so related to how I was exposed to that book. I moved around a lot. So at this point, I was in sixth grade, West Bloomfield, Michigan. Very few Black kids in my school. And I was an avid reader, but I was reading all teenage romance books. And most of them didn't have people that looked like me, but I still liked them anyway. And Mrs. Karpovich gave me this book. And she said, I know you love to read, but you need to read this book. I didn't even really have that much of a relationship with her. She was my literature teacher. And so I read that book and the book itself was powerful, but it was the first book where I read on my own about someone who looked like me and their story. That book was powerful, one, because it was Maya Angelou, her poetry, her words, her writing, her inspiration, her truth. But it also was this teacher truly seeing me and giving me something to connect to. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Is there any cultural icons, maybe somebody that's an idol or you just really appreciate in the creative world? So obviously Maya Angelou was one. The other would be Prince. And similar in that, he was always about his truth, his musical talents. Whatever he was feeling in that year or for that decade, that's what he put out. But when I was younger, my parents would not let me actually go to a Prince concert. In their mind, he was risque. Before he passed years ago, my sister surprised me and got me tickets to see Prince live. Wow. It was just the best experience, one of the best experiences of my life. The legacy he left is unparalleled in music. I was just wondering what your favorite exhibit is at the museum. Numbers in nature. It speaks 
to one that science is all around us. It's everywhere. And then I think it's also one that really does a phenomenal job of bringing kids into science. My kids' favorite because it's when they're starting to get introduced to science and math, it's so visual to connect that it's there, it's right in front of you. And so I've had discussions with my kids in the car based on things that they've seen in that exhibit. And then we have this wonderful mirror mage that you're going through and you bump your head, which is really what science is about, trial and error, right? And so there's just a great symbolism. That's cool. Yolanda, it's been so great having you on the podcast. And I'm so glad Tracy connected you to us. And now we know why she loves you so much. The passion <laughs> that you have for what you do and what you believe in comes right through. Thank you okay, so much for you. bringing your heart to this discussion. Thank you for having me and giving me a voice. And Tracy's been a fabulous partner. We've been through some things, I think, as HR professionals that neither of us have ever seen. So it's nice to have a colleague that you can grow with, talk to, but also just have a moment with. You don't always expect that with your external consultant partners. It's well, been that, we, so greatly appreciate it. We're glad we had a moment with you today. Too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button 